everyone. Welcome to the Horror Geek Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Ann, and with me is my co-host, Justin Corbett. And for those of you who don't know, I'm the owner and editor-in-chief of HorrorGeekLife.com. It's a site that covers all things horror, geek, and gaming. And I'm a writer at HorrorGeekLife.com as well as a contributing editor. So this week, we're joined again by our head editor and lead writer, Kurt Oglesby. Welcome back, Kurt. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited. So we've taken a couple weeks off. Unfortunately, everyone has been sick. And so it's nice to kind of be back at it. And I apologize now if still sound a little bit sick. This stuff is kind of hard to get over. It's it's hard to shake. That's for sure. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about a few things that we covered on Horror Geek Life over the last week or so. First up, the Chiller Network is shutting down as of 2018. It's really no surprise because they've kind of dwindled their um, interactions on social media lately, and they've kind of ghosted a little bit. So I guess it's not a huge shock, but at the same time, they've been around since 2007. So it's kind of sad to see them go because horror films 24-7 on cable TV is kind of cool. It'll definitely be a mess, that's for sure. I'm pretty sure I watched The House of the Devil for the first time on Chiller TV. And that was hugely influential for me. I don't think I ever watched the channel again after that. I always have that memory. It's funny. The House of the Devil, the movie poster font is the font that we used for the logo for Speak No Evil, my comic. Oh, really? Yeah. That's awesome. Okay, so Chiller Network, we will miss you. <laughs> yeah, bye, bye, Chiller. Bye, Chiller. Sorry, you're going. Also this week, we have a writer who talked to the team behind the film Super Dark Times. Kurt, you also reviewed that film. Can you tell us a little bit about it? It is super dark. The end. That's it. No, it's great. I gave it four and a half stars in my review. It's aptly titled. It is really dark. It takes place in the 90s. There's some nostalgia there with the setting of the time period and the banter between kids. So it's not all depressing, but the central story is you see these kids are involved in a deadly accident and you see the effect that has on their mentality moving forward. It's super dark, but it's, it's a great movie. I've heard really good things about it. So it was pretty cool that they were able to talk to one of our writers. I read over the interview and even without seeing the film yet, it was a pretty good read. So I'm really excited to see the film after reading the review and the interview. So also in movie news this week, Don't Fuck in the Woods 2 put out their casting call. For those of you who are interested in acting and horror and don't mind a lot of nudity, <laughs> you can apply and they are anticipating that production will take place in April or mid-May around Ohio and they're looking for four females, four males and while there will be a lot of sexual situations, they say that no actual sex will take place. It just kind of sounds like it should be a given, but if you've seen the first film, I can see why they put that in there because I reviewed the first film for Horror Geek Life and there were so many times where I thought it was just straight up real sex and I don't know how it wasn't. I saw positions in Don't Fuck in the Woods that I have never seen in just a film that wasn't an adult film that wasn't on Cinemax. Those of you who are actually interested, uh, we have it up on our website that you can get the email address and send them your information and be in Don't Fuck in the Woods Part 2. You going to audition, Kurt? No, I'm not. <laughs> they should get the same person to play all eight parts in the movie, kind of like what Eddie Murphy used to do in the 90s. As a matter of fact, they should just get Eddie Murphy. That's what I was going to say. That sounds yeah. amazing. I would pay money to be a producer on that film, just watching Eddie Murphy fuck himself. <laughs> Actually, that should be the spoof, like a scary movie was, to scream. That should be, don't fuck Eddie Murphy in the woods. I'd watch that. 
So in gaming news this week, Pong turned 45. It debuted on November 29th, 1972, and it was the first commercially successful video game. And it actually pretty much established the entire video game industry. So pretty cool. A big anniversary for Pong. Definitely. Kurt, did you ever play Pong? You're the baby of the group. I'm not that young. Come on. I ran a Pong hustle in middle school. I would have friends come over to my house and I'd act like I sucked at Pong and then I'd kick their ass and take their quarters. So <laughs> You're like was, a Pong shark. Yeah, I'm a Pong shark. So what's really cool is right now uh, there is a company making a Pong table. The table can look like an ordinary coffee table and then you open it up and it turns into a huge screen with Pong on it so you can play it with friends. And So that's pretty cool that's actually coming out, I believe, in 2018. I need that table. I do too. Okay, so moving on to our main topic this week is a film that I can already call one of my all-time favorite films, and that is the 2017 It. We all love the movie, I think it's safe to say, because we're going to uh, gush over it for like the next 20 minutes or so. Yeah, it's all right. I think. (laughs) And I think we all saw it in theater multiple times, right? Uh, I saw it three times. Yeah, I saw it four times. I saw it twice, and I cannot wait to own it. I'm really excited. And that's actually the reason why I wanted to talk about it is because it's actually coming out on digital here pretty soon on the 19th, and then it's coming out on Blu-ray and DVD on January 9th. Pretty excited to actually have that in my hands. Yeah, yeah, I, I got to have it on Blu-ray, which I don't, I don't really buy that many Blu-rays anymore, but this one I got to own for sure. You two saw it before me, and Kurt, I think you were the first one that actually saw it. You just gushed over it. You wrote an article about it immediately. I think you ended up writing like 17 articles uh, about (laughs) it. Probably. Maybe more. Maybe more. Uh, A few editorials and a review (laughs) and a quiz, and I I don't even know what else. I was Um, a little obsessed. Yes. And so I remember thinking, I'm going to be let down by this because it seems like when a film is really hyped up, especially a horror film, and I finally go see it, I'm kind of like, it was okay because I'm expecting such great things. And Justin, you went and saw it. I said, man, Kurt is really hyping this up. I'm afraid it's going to let me down. And he said, it's not going to let you down. I promise. I was eagerly awaiting your review because you had told me that. You had told me you might not like it because it had been so popular. And typically, you know, People that like things and hype them up so much, you know, they're usually wrong. But uh, I was really hoping you were going to enjoy it as much as Kurt and I had because we had been talking about it on the chat for a few days about how amazing it was. So I'm really glad you enjoyed it as much as we did. I was worried you weren't going to like it and that I was going to have to stop being your friend because you were just too wrong. So I'm really glad you enjoyed it. For those of you who think he's kidding, he wasn't kidding. He actually threatened that. I did. We obviously all loved the film. And Kurt, do you remember what you gave it in your review, what the score was? I do. I gave it five out of five stars. Perfect. I probably would have given it about the same. I just wanted to talk a little bit about it, about casting and some interesting differences between the book and then what we want to see in chapter two when it comes out. So first of all, let's start with casting. What did you think about Pennywise? Because... I'll be honest, when I saw the trailers, I really wasn't sold on Pennywise. I thought it was going to come off as really goofy. I was very worried about it. So what did y'all think? I had the same skepticism after seeing the trailers. You know, he did look very cartoonish and very like cheesy, Mm -hmm. especially in the scenes they chose to highlight in the the trailer. That wasn't the case at all, though. I was blown away by Skarsgård's performance. I actually think he was better than Tim Curry in the role. I mean, not I don't to, think you're allowed to say that. Not to take anything away from Tim Curry because he was amazing as Pennywise. He's always been amazing in everything he's ever done. 
But uh, Bill definitely took that character and made it his own. I, I think the biggest comparison you can make is is him to like Heath Ledger's Joker. Like he took the character and did something completely new and original with it, and it was groundbreaking for a lot of people. It became their favorite version of that character. I I love Skarsgård's Pennywise, and uh, I'm a fan of his now after this movie. What do you think, Kurt? I loved him in the movie. I was skeptical at first too. Not not so much in the trailers, but it's in the still images that we got. Just the outfit and the look and the huge forehead and the teeth. They weren't really doing it for me. But then, you know, seeing him in action, it, I really loved him. I think Justin's right in saying that he's better than Tim Curry, even though it's two different interpretations of the characters. But I do prefer Bill's performance better. You know, as strong as he is in the movie, though, and as terrifying as he is, Pennywise isn't the strongest element of the film, I don't think. I'm sure we'll get more into that. Yeah, I agree. Like I said, I was not sold on him, and I expected not to like the character. But the opening scene with Georgie, holy shit, (laughs) it just blew me away. One of my favorite scenes in the entire film is him talking when he's in the gutter, and he's talking about being blown away and just his personality that comes through and how he's kind of being whimsical and funny and Georgie's laughing. And then he just stops when that part happened. I thought, Oh shit, this is what I've wanted. And I was sold from that moment on even later on when he is with Beverly, the trailer opens and he starts doing the dance. I really thought that that was going to be a cheesy scene when it started. And that is probably my second favorite scene of the entire film. So you're right, Justin. I love the comparison that you made with Heath Ledger. Because it's like with the Joker, I really loved Jack Nicholson's Joker, but Heath Ledger did something that he didn't do. And I feel the same way here. I mean, just phenomenal. Yeah, he definitely made it his own. Next up, Kurt, you actually wrote an entire editorial about this actor. So I have to imagine that you were a fan. Ben Wolfhard is kind of the it kid at the moment because of it and, of course, Stranger Things. And he plays Richie, which is like the practical Joker, sarcastic one of the entire film. So tell us a little bit about why you love him so much and why you wrote a 4,000-word editorial on him. It was 8,000 words. (laughs) (laughs) And we don't have enough time on the podcast for me to go in depth about how much I love him. I mean, when you're in the only two things that mattered in 2017, Stranger Things and It, you're going to be the It kid. He was so funny as Richie. He had jokes in the movie at the most inappropriate times, but they worked every time. They broke tension, but added depth to his character at the same time. He nails the role. He's really good. He was really good. I loved the end, of course. He kind of has that moment, right? At the very end, when they're facing off against Pennywise, and he takes the baseball bat, and you don't really know where he's going with his monologue. Then he threatens Pennywise, and you just kind of go, oh, man, he's awesome. I'm glad you said that. That That is my favorite movie moment ever, probably, is when he gives a speech and just takes the baseball bat to Pennywise. I love that moment so much. Yeah, It's a great one. And then, of course, the leader of the pack is Bill, who is played by Jaden Lieberher. I thought he was a really strong lead. I think he did a really good job of being the team leader and uniting everybody. And he gave a speech as well that kind of brought everybody together. Um, His delivery was really good. He was believable as kind of the unsure of himself kid that sort of found his way to being that sort of leader. I think he did a great job just all the way around. Yeah, I agree. And then we have Eddie, who is played by Jack Dylan Grazer, the kid who is taking his gazebos the entire time. <laughs> Nobody liked him. Okay. Nobody liked him. He was, he was the worst. Right. I loved this kid. <laughs> 
I, I think he was kind of my Finn Wolfhard in the film. This kid just kind of made the entire film for me other than Pennywise. And I loved his his delivery. I loved his reaction to everything, just kind of how over the top everything is. Yeah, I just adored him. I adored him so much. Him and Finn are so great together, I think, in the movie. Their dynamic as Richie and Eddie was really great. And I'm excited to see that explored when their adult characters come back in part two. And of course, Eddie had the iconic cast on. I, I say iconic because now it's kind of everywhere that, yeah. you know, loser turned into lover. Yeah, I love that as well. So we have a new Beverly. I say new Beverly because if you were going to compare Beverly, we talked about this before, but if you're comparing Beverly to the Beverly in the first film, I think it's kind of a night and day difference because the Beverly portrayed in the 1990 film, she was just kind of more mousy and meek and kind of seemed a lot weaker. In the original, she felt like she was along for the ride with the boys, whereas in this one, she had more a place as a, a her own character rather than just a supplemental character to what the boys were doing. Beverly is just such a great character in general because in the film and in the book, she takes so much abuse. And there's a reason why Pennywise kind of focuses his efforts on her is because she's the, the tough one to crack. I think right next to Bill, probably. She just gets his wrath over and over and over again. But that's why is because she's so strong in everything that she's already had to endure. And of course, she has these cringe worthy moments where she's dealing with her dad, who is sexually abusing her. What I really loved about her performance is that he first interacts with her and he puts his arm on her. You already know their entire history just because of her silent reaction to him. Yeah. You know what he's been doing to her. You know what their relationship is like because as soon as he touches her, the way she locks up and the way her eyes go, and I, I mean, it just blew me away, her performance did. After I saw the movie and everybody started seeing the movie for themselves, people complained that she was weak and got used as a damsel in distress. Fuck that. I was so pissed off when people were saying that. She was the heart of the film. She gave strength to every other character. She took so much on in her own life. And then she dropped her fucking dad with a toilet lid. To say that she's a weak character and was only used as a damsel in distress is crazy. Well, I think one reason that people had mentioned that is, you know, the fact that whenever she's in the lights, Ben, who, of course, is in love with her, kisses her to wake her up. And so that was kind of the moment that people didn't appreciate being in the film. She definitely, like, dealt with more than the boys did. And she did it all, most of it by herself. I mean, they had to rescue her at the very, very end. But, I mean, mm -hmm. she's also kind of the linchpin that kept everybody together. In a way, she was even more of a leader than Bill was. So let's talk a second about the villain other than Pennywise, the villain of the film, which was Henry Bowers, played by Nicholas Hamilton. Nicholas Hamilton is great. First time I saw him, I think, was in Captain Fantastic with Viggo Mortensen, which was a great movie. Everybody should check that out. I really loved him as Henry Bowers. I'm not sure if they'll bring him back for part two because he looks pretty dead. The story and his performance gave you enough of his mindset to understand why he is the way he is, you know, with his shitty father and the abuse he takes at home. I thought he was really strong, and I don't think, you know, the rest of the cast, the child actors get a lot of credit, but I don't think he gets quite the credit he deserves. Yeah, I do agree that he doesn't get quite the recognition that the other ones do, and, you know, partly because he's the villain, and so the villains kind of get overlooked a little bit compared to the heroes, other than Pennywise. I thought he was a really good Henry Bowers. I When I first saw him, I wasn't exactly sold on the look because it was just so stereotypical, maybe. 
I will tell you that the Henry Bowers from the original miniseries film scared me a lot more than this Henry Bowers. Do you think, though, be- that could be because of the, the time periods where you watch them? I thought the same thing, but I thought it because when I watched the original Ed, I was more of a kid, and I was used to dealing with bullies and kids that acted more like him, whereas as an adult watching it, um, it's harder to relate to that bully or to relate to being afraid of that bully. No, and I'll tell you why, actually, because Henry Bowers in the original film, he gave me, um, even today, like he gives me that same sense of Henry Bowers from the book where he's so unpredictable and he's just so wild and so dark that you don't know what's going to happen, where this Henry Bowers, you kind of see some of his weaker moments a little bit more. And so he didn't have that same pure darkness that the first one had. So I think that was probably be why. Okay, I can see that. At the end of the film, when he had his showdown with Mike, we saw that darker version come out even more. But that darker version is kind of how I felt the old Henry Bowers was throughout. So moving on, we'll just kind of group these together. I'm so sorry, even though they're all great actors. But Chosen Jacobs as Mike. And then we have Jeremy Ray Taylor as Ben and Wyatt Olaf as Stan. Poor I kind of group them together because they're kind of not as prevalent, I guess, as the other actors, especially Mike. Mike was really kind of pushed towards the back, I think, of the pack. Yeah, I feel like uh, in the miniseries, Stan really didn't get a lot to do. And it was kind of the same here as well. But Mike was so important in the miniseries. Mm-hmm. And here he was really pushed to the back. I feel like they have to make up for that in part two somehow. They seem to give a lot of his story to Ben, so I'm not sure if they'll continue to do that in part two. I was a little disappointed in the treatment of Mike. I thought that the actor was great. I think that he played a really good Mike. I really liked Jeremy Ray Taylor as Ben. I thought he was just the most adorable thing. He was. <laughs> his, the new kids on the block moments uh, that <laughs> he has with Beverly. Yes. I mean, who didn't relate to that kid at that moment? And then uh, Wyla Olaf, as you said, with Stan, I liked him. I wish that he would have had more of a role because I liked the actor so much. I really enjoyed him as Stan. I like Stan more in this version than the miniseries. I didn't expect to get much out of the character, and then we didn't get much out of the character. But he did have the painting lady like sucking on his face in a sewer, so that was kind of cool, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> I did like his scenes a lot. Uh, Whenever we see the painting lady the first time, that was a really great scene. But yeah, so they all did really great. I think it would be really hard to find fault within this cast that they chose, honestly. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, definitely. I think the cast was was perfect. I wish we had seen more of the town or the townspeople because every time we got a glimpse of anybody, they were just the most unsettling people. And I wish we had seen a little bit more of that or a little bit more of the interaction of the town with the kids because everybody seemed like something was wrong with them. The librarian lady, when he first gets the book from her and he's flipping through Mm -hmm. it, you see her standing in the background staring at him. Everybody in the whole town is just bizarre. So I think that the miniseries did a better job. And then, of course, you know, in the book, talking about the townspeople and the town and how it kind of absorbs that evil you only kind of caught a glimpse of that whenever Ben is getting the H into his stomach and the people just keep driving by him. That's kind of an indicator of how the entire town is. They overlook things. And if you remember in the book, Georgie's body was found. The town really didn't care about Georgie's death that much. This film didn't really touch on that as much, but I wish it would have. Well, in the 
first scene, we see just how the town is really, how they're going to ignore everything happening to the children because the lady comes out on her porch and she sees Georgie laying on the road and talking into the sewer and she just doesn't care. She turns and goes away. We're already talking about a little bit, but let's talk about some more of the differences between the film and the book. And one of the biggest differences is the time period because the book was set in the late 50s, 1957, 1958 for the kids portion. And then the adults were in 1984 and 1985. So the kids here are 1989 and the adults will be 27 years later, which is 2016. That's kind of a huge difference because in the book, a lot of what the kids dealt with were things going on in the 50s. For example, Boris Karloff's mummy and Richie seeing the werewolf from I Was a Teenage Werewolf, where if you would have put those things in this film, it wouldn't have been as impactful because a kid from 1989 is probably not going to be that scared of a 1950s universal monster. Right. Near the end, when the kids are beating up on Pennywise, we see a glimpse of it shifting into a mummy. And I think that was a callback to the original and to the novel. Yeah, I definitely think you're right, Kurt, that that was a callback to the uh, universal monsters that were removed from this film. But there was there was a lot of other changes between the two films. This one didn't have Bill and his turtle and the ritual of Chud. They did reference the turtle in really subtle ways, like when they're playing in the quarry and they go, oh, look, a turtle. And then Bill just happens to pick up a turtle made out of Legos in Georgie's room. But he didn't have his turtle telling him how to fight Pennywise. But they didn't have it in the first film either. The novel is out there from what I remember. I haven't read since I was 10 or 11 years old. I think to put everything with the turtle into the movie would have been a hard sell maybe i think it would have been cheesy as fuck yeah so i think they probably made the right call to not include it but to you know give subtle easter eggs for fans of the novel definitely and then another difference uh, which was already kind of touched on is that mike and ben were kind of swapped in this one where in the book mike is the town historian and he tells the losers club everything about the town and the murders and deaths and things like that and he's kind of the key in figuring out what is going on where in this one it's the new kid ben who lets everybody know what's going on instead of mike yeah which as we said kind of pushes mike to the back one thing i like that they got rid of from the transition from the miniseries was the silver bullets yeah and this one they replaced it with the prod that he used on the sheep. That was kind of the silver bullet slingshot updated. Yeah, I could see that. There was a scene near the end where, you know, when they're attacking Pennywise and Mike says that it's empty, he shoots him anyway. It still affects Pennywise because it seems like Bill believes that it will harm him and the power of his imagination kind of has an effect on Pennywise. So I wonder if in this one that had more to do with the damage that they could do to Pennywise than in the original. Yeah, I think in this one, it was all about their lack of fear and their their belief in themselves that they could overcome it. That's what defeated him, rather than a magical silver bullet. It kind of relied more on them acting as a team or as a group, and that they had to overcome him by, you know, not having that fear, like you said, Justin, instead of actual physical tools. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, me too. So let's talk about the biggest difference that will probably never make any version of it that is ever made and that is how they escape from the tunnels at the very end which of course in the book they all lose their virginity in an orgy with beverly nobody expected that to be in this in this movie uh nobody definitely expected it to be on the made for tv movie and like i said it will never be in any version of it ever but 
for those of you who don't know, that's actually how the Losers Club get out of the sewers, is that they all have sex with Beverly. Once Pennywise is defeated, they start to forget, and their bond has to grow again, and that's the way they establish a connection, is to have a sewer orgy. And Greywater, I can't believe people were actually peeved that that didn't make the movie. Wait, wait. People actually were upset that that didn't Yeah, people were complaining. I've seen in several horror groups on Facebook, I've seen people complaining. And that seems like such an odd thing to complain about. They didn't get to watch a child orgy. I don't understand. I wasn't complaining. Justin, were you complaining? I was. I, I liked. I liked the end. I don't really think the orgy was necessary. But I mean, it is funny factoid about the book compared to the movies. But I'm not really sure who champions to have that in the film. But I'm pretty sure that they're on a watch list somewhere. Yeah, they, they should be. And of course, you know, this film kind of has a happy ending. So. It was a fitting ending, I think, for the for the tone of most of the movie. You know, it was an enchanting kind of tone and uplifting. Even with all the horrific things that happen, there's a sense of optimism and hope among the children. And I feel like the ending really captured that well. The ending actually kind of makes me a little sad to see chapter two because Stan, as I said, I really enjoy his character. And as we know, Stan commits suicide before he's able to go back and help the Losers Club fight Pennywise once again. And that's why when the circle is broken, Stan is the first one to leave. It's kind of that symbolism that he's going to be the first one to leave the pack pretty much. And it makes me sad to actually, you know, see these kids go through everything and overcome and, and smile at the end and then know what's coming for that character in particular. They're all so likable that you just, you hate that there's such darkness coming in part two. You don't want anything bad to happen to these characters. Yeah, and, definitely not. And bad things are definitely going to happen. <laughs> so, Justin, do you have any uh, casting that you would just really like to see for these kids as a adult version? Well, I have I have a couple that I think would be interesting. Chris Pratt would make an interesting Ben. I think Bill Hader would be a perfect Richie. Yeah, that's who Finn Wolfhard wants to play Richie is Bill Hader. And I could see that. The only other one that I've seen that I, I really... Because, I mean, there's all kinds of fan lists out there with people speculating or saying who they'd like to see and stuff. And I've kind of gone over a few of them. Um, there was only one other one that I really liked, and it was Michael C. Hall playing uh, Henry Bowers as an adult. I think that would be amazing. Yeah, especially with the voice. I think the accent really lines up there. Yeah. I think that if he had not passed away, Anton Yelchin would have been an amazing Stanley because every time I saw Wyatt, he just reminded me of a younger Anton Yelchin. Unfortunately, that won't happen. I think there's a 100% chance now that Jessica Chastain is going to play Beverly uh, just because she worked with the director on Mama. And apparently fans want her to play Bev and she wants to play Bev and the director wants her to play Bev. So I'd be surprised if anyone other than Jessica Chastain ends up playing Beverly in part two. While I really like her in some things, I liked her in Mama. I, I can't really see her acting style as Bev, but then again, the casting choices for the first chapter were so spot on, but I can't really see that. I don't really like that casting either, but I mean, we'll see what happens. Is there anything else that y'all want to see for chapter two? More Bill Skarsgård. I want to see social media. I think with it taking place in 2016, they have to nail that. Part one taking place in the 80s because everyone's nostalgic about the 80s right now. 
2016 has to feel like 2016. We need to see technology, social media, everything needs to really capture the era of when it takes place. So that's really what I want to see. You know, you bring up a really interesting point because I hadn't really thought about that, that it is going to take place in present day, but killer clown is haunting your town and kids are starting to see them. Do you have a hashtag trending for hashtag killer clown? Um, (laughs) They get the friend request from bike handling. You'll see the oh shit moment. I mean, that's another good point, though, is that in the book and the first film that they kind of all lose contact. They didn't remain friends during the time in between Pennywise. And so with social media, did they look each other up? Are they already Facebook friends? Do they have a little secret group on Facebook? (laughs) We'll see what happens. We'll see the route they take. I have faith. Justin, do you have any uh, closing thoughts about chapter two? Just that I'm really looking forward to it. We can't get here soon enough. I, I like that they decided to split the movie into part one of the kids and part two is the adults versus meshing the two like they did with the uh, original miniseries. The first half of the movie I loved and I have high expectations for the second half. Hopefully it lives up to it. Okay, so let's move on to our hypothetical question of the week. Justin, do you have a question for us? I do. Sticking with the theme of it. If you had to have an orgy with six of your friends in order to save your town, could you do it? (laughs) Okay, I thought you were going to have us name the six people. Yeah, that's what I thought too. I was like, well, I'm backing out of this. (laughs) Hey, if you want to name names, you're welcome to. (laughs) So would we have an orgy with six people? I could answer this. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. (laughs) I had a wild streak. And I think that that wild streak can come back out if I am faced with never getting out of a goddamn sewer underneath dairy. You know what? Just just do it and get it done with. Yeah, fuck it. I'm, I'm down. I'll do it. I don't care. I'm, I'm going to live out my days as a sewer creature. <laughs> <laughs> I'm already I'm already in a sewer. I might as well. <laughs> I mean, the the biggest thing there is that, I mean, you really are having an orgy in, like we said, the gray water. And, um, oh man, that, that part would probably bother me more than the act itself. All of it's bad. All of it's bad. I don't think I could do it, honestly. So we just figured out that Kurt and I are totally down for orgies and Justin is totally down for living in the sewers. Yeah. I'll I'll be a sewer dweller. It's okay. (laughs) I would say that I'm skeptically down for orgies. I'm not totally down for orgies. I'm, <laughs> I'm hesitant, but I'm, I don't want to stay in the sewer. I'm already changing my Twitter bio right now. <laughs> so has sex and sewer orgies? Hashtag down for sewer orgies. Owner, editor-in-chief of Horror Geek Life, always down for an orgy in gray water. <laughs> People do not send me messages about this, please. They're going to. <laughs> I know. Um, okay, so moving on to our next, how do we even follow that up with orgies? Okay, so moving on to our next topic is HGL Recommends, where we recommend something awesome for our listeners to hopefully check out soon. Kurt, what do you have for us this week? Brawl and Cell Block 99 is directed by S. Craig Zoller. He's the filmmaker behind Bone Tomahawk, which is one of my favorite movies of the decade. This was incredible. It was so graphically violent, but... The direction was so assured, and he took time with his story. And Vince Vaughn has always been like a lovable kind of guy. He's terrifying. 
it's it's a genre movie, but by the end, you're so emotionally invested in the character because of Vince Vaughn's portrayal. It's a great movie. Outside of it, it's my second favorite of the year, and I also gave it a 5 of 5 in my review this week. I'm glad to hear that it was really good, and I'll have to check it out whenever I get a chance. Yeah, you'd love it. Justin, what do you have for us? I've been watching a lot of Netflix original shows lately, and some of them are good and some of them are not so good. Uh, But one that I've really loved is an Australian show called Glitch. And it's about seven people that uh, come back to life. They've been dead for anywhere from a couple hundred years to just a couple months. And uh, they all wake up in a graveyard and crawl out of their graves and they're naked and have no idea who they are or how they died or anything like that. And the cops find them, and this one cop in particular, one of the the people that's come back is his dead wife. So he takes a special interest in the whole group and starts trying to help them figure out where they came from and like how they died. And like they're trying to figure out this whole mystery of how they came back to life. Season one is good. Season two is amazing. I was blown away by how good season two was. It's uh, It just came out on Netflix, I think, November 6th. So not that long ago. Definitely highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. It's very interesting. Uh, unique mystery for sure. Check it out. I think you'll like it. I've never heard of that, but I'm going to look it up. I've seen a lot of people mentioning it on Facebook and Twitter, and I've seen it uh, on Netflix. I just haven't given it a watch yet, but now I'm definitely interested. Alternatively, don't bother with Slasher. (laughs) (laughs) I've heard that a few times now. (laughs) I keep seeing people say, you know, just very simply, oh, this sucks. Oh, it's boring. But what was your opinion of it real quick? Uh, Season one has Katie McGrath as the lead and I like her. I've liked her in a lot of things I've seen her in and she's interesting and the general premise is interesting, but everything that happens is very generic and it's all been done before. And it was pretty easy to figure out who the killer was. And the mystery was not very well concealed in the first season. And then the second season takes you to a completely different place with completely new people. And uh, that mystery, even though they do a better job of concealing who the killer is, it's dumb. (laughs) like the story itself is dumb. It's about kids that go to a summer camp and murder one of their co-counselors and then hide the body. And then five years later, they find out there's construction going up. So they go back to try to move the body, except they go back in the dead of winter where there's this hippie commune that's moved in and they have to convince them all these other reasons why they're there. And then people start dying and both sides sort of turn against each other. It's, it's just dumb. It's dumb. Like uh, there were things that I liked about it. Some of the death scenes were pretty good, but aside from that, it really doesn't have a lot of redeeming value. Season one was better than season two, but neither one is great. Uh, If you're looking for something new to check out, that's really cool. Check out glitch, but I'd stay away from slasher. Okay. So the project that I'm going to recommend is actually on Indiegogo right now. It is from the Simpsons lead animator and Tourette syndrome conqueror chance raspberry. He is trying to make a sitcom that's based in the eighties and From the looks of it, it's very nostalgic with a lot of the cartoons and toys that we grew up with. It's an animated series that deals with life with neurodiversity. Right now on Indiegogo, he has raised a little over $4,300 of the $10,000 goal. And what's really cool is some of the perks include posters and t-shirts and things like that. But there's also a perk to get an animation lesson, which is an amazing perk. So hopefully Horror Geek Life gets to talk to him pretty soon about the project and learn more about it and what he's trying to do with little Billy. I'm very excited to contribute and see it to come to life, though. So we'll have an article about that probably later on this week, and then we'll also link it in the show notes. So if you want to check that project out and hopefully contribute as well, then you can do that. Sounds good. Sounds fun. 
So that wraps up our 12th episode of the Horror Geek Podcast. Thank you all so much for tuning in. And of course, we'll be back next week bringing you more horror, geek, and gaming. As long as no one else gets sick. Hopefully not. <laughs> Fingers crossed. So for more information about our podcast, you can check out horrorgeeklife.com and click on the podcast link. We're available on iTunes, Google Play, and most other podcatchers. If you enjoy the show, please consider leaving us a review and subscribing. You can follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Horror Geek Life. If you'd like to follow me on Facebook and Twitter, you can follow me under Horror Geek Mel. And if you'd like to follow me, I'm pretty much everywhere as at ComicalJC. Uh, I also like to ask people to go check out my comic book, Speak No Evil. Issue 3 is coming out next month, hopefully, or maybe even later this month. Uh, we're almost done with it. Uh, but it's available at graybearcomics.com. And you can also follow Grey Bear Comics pretty much everywhere as at Grey Bear Comics. And Kurt, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter, uh, at HGLWriterGuy. Instagram, if you want, under the same handle. I just take stupid pictures of my beard. Or you, you can come check out my work on horrorgeeklife.com. I'm a better writer than I am a speaker, so you'll have a better version of Kurt to look forward to if you do so. Oh, and I did forget to mention that we're now officially on Instagram. <laughs> Thanks to one of our awesome team members taking that over because I suck at Instagram. So we're officially there. Okay, so thanks, everyone. And like I said, we'll be back next week. Bye, guys. Ow.